If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Gawthorne. Today's guest is the historian and author Linda Colley, whose latest book, The Gun, the Ship and the Pen, explores how written constitutions, alongside warfare, shaped the modern world from the 18th century onwards. Linda spoke to our deputy editor, Matt Elton, about some of the key constitutions and what they can tell us about the politics of the 21st century. So your book title, Linda, is The Gun, the Ship and the Pen. Um, And I think a lot of world histories are written with a focus on those first two tools in in kind of shaping the world. How much of this was an effort to sort of rebalance, uh, to focus more on the constitution as being just as important? I mean, I suppose I wrote this book with two broad aims in mind. There have been versions of constitutions in various societies from ancient times, but I wanted to understand why from about 1750 you got new kinds of constitutions uh, which were very much bound up with print, which were widely publicised, and which began to spread exponentially across continents as they have continued to do. And and I wanted to try and understand why that happened. And as I began exploring it, it seemed to me that it was not good enough. It was not remotely good enough to say, oh, it's all about the spread of democracy, that a much more wide-ranging and essential factor where the pressures and incidents of war and that by following wars, following violence, I could give a rather different cast to the spread of these documents and encourage people to look at them more widely and I hope with more interest. Because you write that we often think about constitutions purely in terms of legislative history um, rather than being part of a wider picture. And you also write that being as you are from the UK, there was something exotic about this type of document. Yeah, um, I moved to work in the United States, first of all, in the early 1980s. And coming from one of the few countries on the face of the globe, namely the UK, 
which doesn't have a codified constitution. I, I did sort of look at, at America's written constitution, about which it makes a cult, obviously, uh, with rather different eyes. And I began to explore it and explore some of the other constitutions. And I thought, hey, this is really interesting. It's, it's not just legalese and political detail, though obviously there's that, but there's a lot of other stuff too. Uh, and it's a fantastic archive. And I think coming from the outside actually helped me to approach these texts rather differently. I, I didn't have an instinctive reverence for them. I was just curious. You mentioned the American example there, which I think is perhaps the most famous example. Some of the others in your book, I have to confess, I had not heard of at all, including the earliest example, the earliest major example, which is from Corsica. Um, can you talk a bit about, about this example and why it was so important and, influ and influential, I suppose? Well, I started with this constitution, uh, which is drafted by a remarkable man called Pascal Paoli in 1755 uh, on Corsica. He's leading an armed rebellion against Genoa, which has been the imperial hegemon over Corsica for centuries. And as part of this military campaign, Pauli, who uh, is very interested in the classics, in the Enlightenment, decides to draft this really rather remarkable constitution, which at one level is very military, but at another level is very democratic, though only as regards men. Uh, and for Pauli, these things are linked. His view is that unless you give men an investment in the state, they will not defend it in times of danger. Uh, and of course, Corsica is right in the middle of a time of danger, not just on its own soil, but the Seven Years' War is beginning uh, which increasingly becomes a global war. And this both gives Pauli opportunities, but also threatens him. And, and this Corsican campaign for independence is wiped out in the late 1760s when the French invade. But I wanted to start with this story because it's a good one and because it does link war constitutions and the spread of rights, but for men. And the type of war that you're talking about is specifically what you call a hybrid war. What do you mean by that term? Well, um, I, I got taken to task for this, I should say, by my wonderful nephew who studies war studies at, at, at King's College. And he says, you know, Linda, you can't use hybrid warfare. Don't you know what that means? And he had to explain it. Uh, and hybrid warfare in the early 21st century means rather different things than what I mean, as I say, in the book. What I mean in my book 
is that as wars in the 18th century begin to become more and more transcontinental, involving for the major players large navies as well as large armies, they become more and more expensive. Uh, I mean, to build a huge fighting ship, to build a fleet of huge fighting ships is exorbitant. And of course, you've also got to get men for your armies. And I think that focuses minds within the rulers of the states involved. How are they going to mobilize money? How are they going to mobilize the men? And what one of the factors behind the growth of constitutions is that they are contracts, basically. Contracts where the ruler says there will be higher levels of taxes, I will introduce varieties of conscription. In return, you, the adult males, will get the vote, perhaps, and there will be other rights as well. So that's one of the ingredients. So to some extent, they're partly efforts to control populations to meet the growing demands of warfare. Yes, um, and that's the kind of top-down incentives and pressures. But I think there's also, uh, if you like, a a bottom-up aspect to this, that as wars become more wide-ranging, as more men are swept up in them, as war taxation becomes more regular and increasing, that also, of course, encourages agitation among those men and women exposed to these demands. And it's no accident that, uh, you know, what is one of the big spurs of the American Revolution, it is Britain increasing or trying to increase taxation on its American colonies to pay for some of the debts it has accumulated with the Seven Years' War and to try and restore its treasury. Similarly, uh, why does the French Revolution break out as it does in 1789? Partly because the French crown is bankrupt. Uh, It has bankrupted itself with a series of wars. It can't raise the necessary taxes. And it has to work out ways to re-legitimise itself, uh, reorganise itself. And it therefore has to call the States General, which hasn't been called for hundreds of years. And... This is the classic beginning of the French Revolution. So there's pressures to keep up with this warfare and those pressures are passed on to the people who then react and cause more pressure, I suppose, if you like. You talk a lot in the book about the three empires of Britain, France and Spain. Something else that really comes through is the importance of quite often quite small islands in this story. Why is that the case and what other examples of island groups tell us something about this? Well, one of the things I wanted to get over in this book was 
Global history is often focused on the big powers, the big states, and in part that's understandable. But small places can actually generate events of quite major importance. And um, my favorite example was Pitcairn in the South Pacific which is where the mutineers from HMS Bounty and their various Tahitian companions end up. Now, in fact, most of those men quickly die. So it's actually the Tahitians and uh, the children that the Tahitian women bear that shape a lot of the island. And there's there's about a hundred of these people by the 1830s. And they are increasingly threatened by American whalers from the East Coast. And so what happens? Well, a Scottish naval captain arrives on Pitcairn in 1838. He's a, he's a cultivated man. And um, the Pitcairners say, well, you know, we have no charter. We have no identity. We don't know who we are. Um, And he says, so he basically writes them a a rudimentary constitution, uh, which is path-breaking in two ways. It's one of the first constitutions to include measures to protect the environment, but also, and more dramatically, this is the first constitution which gives women voting rights on the same basis as men. And here it is happening in a tiny speck in the Pacific among people who are mainly not white. So, This is one of my island stories. What does it tell us that um, it was so unusual for women to be involved in and included in constitutions? Why weren't they elsewhere in the world? I mean, there are very long traditions in all cultures of subsuming women's identities in their fathers or their husbands or their brothers And if your identity is subsumed in that way, it is quite difficult or can be to imagine a separate political identity for yourself. That said, in parts of the world like Japan, um, in the early modern period, or indeed Hawaii and Russia indeed, women who possess landed status and wealth often have a certain amount of perhaps formal political influence, certainly informal political influence. They can make their tenants vote in certain ways, even if they can't vote themselves. I mean, this happens in Britain too. But what the coming of written constitutions tends to do is 
shut out a lot of these informal powers by making it explicit that politics is for men. I mean, uh, and, and even in Britain, where there is no codified constitution, that the British note this development and when they institute their Reform Act in 1832, for the first time it is specified, though not initially in Scotland, that voting is a masculine preserve. And that's very important because um, some historians have said, oh, well, that didn't make much of a difference. But that's not true. Once you write something into law, it becomes much more difficult to alter it. Another way in which gender is a dimension in this story, and again, something I really hadn't considered, is Catherine the Great's constitution, which I genuinely had never really heard anything about. Um, what, would, what did that involve? And how was the way in which she promoted and advanced it used as a template elsewhere in the world? Well, it's not really a constitution. It's a projected law code for the Russian Empire. But it includes provisions for education, social welfare, um, changes in the economy, and so forth. And I was so glad to discover Catherine because many of the, well, most of the constitution writers I look at are obviously male. And looking at Catherine's NACAS, which, which means instruction, which she writes substantially by herself, and it's a huge document in the early 1760s. And she does so really for two reasons. She wants to firm up her own position since she's a usurper. She's pushed out her husband, the Tsar. She may probably was involved at some level in his strangling after. Uh, so her own position is insecure, but she also wants to, again, refurbish her state since Russia has been involved in the Seven Years' War, and she wants to modernise it according to various Enlightenment ideas. And so she pens this extraordinary document, which is then put into print, issued in umpteen languages, Latvian, everything. Um, you know, it, it, it just goes all over the place. And it acquires a European-wide and a wider still uh, reputation but what she also does is that she calls a kind of convention to Moscow to discuss the wording and provisions of the NACAS and representatives from all over 
her empire, including some Muslims, including people of quite low income, come to Moscow to do this. And while there are no women in this convention of a sort, uh, again, um, Russian female landowners are allowed to vote by proxy for its membership. And this idea of getting people from all over a polity to discuss a written text is going to be something, of course, that other countries are going to follow. Uh, Classically, uh, the, the new United States in 1787 with the great convention at Philadelphia. So I was, I was very pleased to find Catherine, and I was also very pleased um, to write about her ideas and her writing, given that this woman still regularly dis gets discussed in terms of her non-too-private life. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. So uh, the, the American Constitution has all sorts of things going for it. But as I keep trying to tell my American friends, it is not the first. We don't always realise just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down you may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone, or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot slash history extra. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. We mentioned a couple times the fact these are written documents. How important is it the fact these were paper documents? What kind of benefits and what problems were there inherent in the fact this was the written word? Paper but also print are absolutely vital. Uh, and it's, it's why there's such a difference, really, 
from the 1750s that, you know, old law codes had been carved into stone or put on parchment like Magna Carta. Many people anyway couldn't read. Um, But now you've got much more paper production, much wider uh, printing networks, though not everywhere, literacy on the rise. And that means that when a power issues its constitution, it doesn't just stay within its domestic frontiers. Because it's made up of words, because it can be put into print, because it can be translated, it can go anywhere where print and paper travel. Uh, And this is a vital motor of the spread of constitutions. And what you increasingly find is publishers recognizing this. And what you get from the 1790s is publishers issuing omnibus volumes of different constitutions. So and if you're really interested in this kind of text, or if you want to draft your own constitution, you can look at these compendia and say, oh, this is how they do it in France. This is how they do it in the United States. This is what they're doing in Norway. And you can mix and match and put it together. Uh, and, And that becomes increasingly common. You can see this even in comparatively recent constitutions like the great Indian constitution of the late 1940s, which again is a mix of indigenous sources, but also influences from around the world. Uh, And they're all coming to shape this huge document crafted in India in the late 1940s. You call this a contagious political genre. Um, Was the fact there was this cross-pollination of ideas one of the key factors in the reason why there were more and more constitutions drawn up? And were there other factors as well? Oh, there there were many factors. Partly these huge revolutionary wars, which are creating new states. Also, of course, great campaigns of conquest like... Napoleon's, which disrupts most parts of continental Europe. And either because you've got new states emerging, as in South America or in Haiti, or you've got these big conquests, you have a demand for new systems of government. And this, of course, is where the contagion of constitutional forms becomes really helpful uh, because we know that these new states, these conquerors will say, well, um, I think I'll, I'll, I'll work for the emancipation of the Jews in this particular German state I've just conquered or I think I will introduce conscription in this new South American state. Ah, yes, 
that's been done somewhere else. Let's look at the wording. Let's apply it here. And so you've got both a contagious product, if I can use that term, and a growing need for the product, which is often fueled by different kinds of violence. We started by talking about the US Constitution. How should we understand it in this context? What was its impact around the rest of the world? As I've already said, I deliberately didn't want to start with the American Constitution because there's actually all sorts of interesting constitutional developments before the United States Constitution. But the United States Constitution is has a particular impact, partly because print and the newspaper press is so advanced in the new United States. Also, it shares a language with the empire it has rejected, namely British Britain. So uh, the constitution crosses the Atlantic back to Britain, which then sends it off to other places. But also, of course, it's such, it's not just a, a clever constitution and a short constitution, which is probably quite important, but it's evolved in such a dramatic way after this epic global war uh, against the British Empire, where um, seemingly, you know, Goliath has been defeated and a new republic has emerged. So uh, the, the American constitution has all sorts of things going for it. But as I keep trying to tell my American friends, it is not the first. Um, you mentioned length there. What else makes for a good constitution? What's the secret behind making a successful one? To ensure it continues to be successful, I think you'd need regular provisions for amendment. Otherwise, these documents become out of date. And in fact, Thomas Jefferson said uh, that he thought that a constitution shouldn't be left untouched for more than, say, 17, 18 years. And I think that's one of the problems with the US Constitution now. Uh, the states' constitutions in the United States are regularly amended. But the founding fathers, because they were, they were worried about possible instability, made it very hard to amend the federal constitution drafted in Philadelphia in 1787. And given that American politics is so riven, it is even harder to amend the, you know, the national constitution. And, and provisions like um, the right to arms, which is added to the constitution quite quickly, uh, you know, that was designed for a world where guns took about three minutes to load. Um, they are not suitable to the kind of armaments that 
some Americans have at their disposal now. And this is an extreme example of one of the challenges of written constitutions. And those who oppose them, including some in Britain, uh, said that this was the problem, um, that they were too rigid. Now, they don't have to be. Norway, which creates its constitution in 1814, uh, and it's still there, but they amend it regularly, and they can do that. And to me, regular amendment is one of the things you need to do to make a constitution work and keep relevant. I am fascinated by the fact that Britain is somewhere that still doesn't have a codified constitution. Yet, as you describe in your book, by the 19th century, it had become somewhere that was hugely important in the rise of this around the world. Perhaps you can talk through that seeming paradox. I think Britain is important, seemingly paradoxically, for rising constitutions in all sorts of ways. I mean, the British have a rather one could call it even hypocritical response to constitutions since they often write them for their colonies and they keep doing that right up to the 1960s. But, you know, it's this idea, well, you people need a written constitution, but, of course, we, we're above that. I'm, I'm, I'm being a little sarcastic. But one of the ways in which Britain does contribute to political change is because of London. London, which has such an advanced press network, which controls large parts of the world, which has the biggest network of ports and the biggest mercantile marine up to the Second World War. So if you are a revolutionary or a constitutional rebel from anywhere, the idea of spending time in London, if you can afford it, can be quite attractive because you can work in the British Library or the British Museum as it was then in, in the great round reading room. You can make use of its shipping networks to send propaganda uh, around the world. If your country doesn't have advanced printing networks, you can get your draft constitution and supporting documents printed in London in any language and then shipped out. Growing numbers of leading radicals realize this from Bolivar, from South America, to Sun Yat-sen from China, to Lenin from Russia, and so on and so on. And so you've got this uh, fascinating paradox that the center of the power that has no codified constitution is in fact helping engineer codified constitutions elsewhere in all sorts of ways. You mentioned a whole range of different places and examples there. Um, what patterns and I suppose problems emerge when we analyse all these things in comparison? I deliberately in the book don't 
sort of award prizes, as it were. I don't say, well, this is a good constitution, this is a dreadful one, and so forth and so forth. What I'm interested in is this new kind of political technology and how it's spreading over the globe. And I'm interested in the way that different nations and empires borrow from each other while also always adding something of their own, making something special. And in the book, too, I wanted to tell a a chronological story because otherwise it it just becomes too chaotic. Uh, Global history is, is very hard to write. It can be even harder to read and understand. So I wanted a a chronological thread running through the book. And and that makes sense historically because you can see changes over time in where, where and when constitutional technology is moving. So the last big chapter in my book looks at Japan's adoption of a codified constitution in 1889. It's not remotely a democratic constitution, but it's very, very important. It's the first in East Asia, and Japan uses it to declare itself now a modern state, emphatically on the world stage, It uses it also to build up its taxes, build up its army and navy, um, and indeed to grow its own empire. But nonetheless, the fact that a people that is not Western, not Christian, not white, is adopting a constitution, a constitution that lasts until after the Second World War, is very important for anti-colonial dissidents in Egypt, in India, in China, in the Ottoman Empire, because they say, look, it can be done. This is not a Western preserve, because other non-Western powers had, had used constitutions before this, but only small ones, all those constitutions hadn't lasted. But the Japanese constitution does last, and Japan is not small. And it really changes the game. And so I thought, while I I look in the conclusion of my book at what happens after the First World War, I really wanted to end with Japan as the last detailed Big Bang, if you like. Are there any other examples, or I suppose even individuals, that we've not covered that we really should? There's so many, I I think, because I, I was determined to make this a book about people and not just paper. Another thing I also wanted to do was to get people to look at constitutions as a form of literature, Uh, many of those involved in their writing are involved in other modes of literary creation. One of the guys who I describe in some detail 
and who starts out as a slave, but then ends up in an important position in Tunisia and helps create the Tunisian constitution of 1861. Um, He doesn't only do that, he also runs a newspaper and writes stories and publishes stories for children. And there's, and of course, he's a military officer. Again, there's the element of war. And I, I, I wanted to insert these figures into the story, partly for reasons of human interest, but partly to get into the minds of some of the people who were creating these extraordinary documents. That person sounds fascinating. What, what's his name? It is General Hussein Ibn Abdallah. Finally, in 2011, you wrote a piece for The Guardian which they headlined, Why Britain Needs a Written Constitution. Do you, do you still think that, um, given the things that have happened politically over the intervening decade? You know, I, I'm not a politician and I don't live in the UK anymore most of the time. My feeling is that, you know, it is possible that the UK will fragment, more possible than when I wrote Britons, in, which was published in 1992. If Scotland becomes independent, the SNP have already said they will introduce a written constitution. If Northern Ireland unites with the rest of Ireland, as now seems more possible, though still difficult, the existing Irish constitution will have to be rewritten. That would leave England and Wales without a codified constitution, but with a completely different political profile at which point I think there would be considerable pressure for a constitution to re-legitimise this new territory. Or think of another scenario, the UK hangs together perilously, but government finally decides that devolution isn't working, that they've got to move towards a more openly federal system, in which case, again, they are likely to need a codified constitution uh, because to make a federal system work, as they showed early on in uh, the United States, but as, of course, is also true in Germany, you you need a written constitution to, to... spell out how each of the parts fits with each other and who has what powers and what powers they don't have. Uh, and, And one of Britain's, or more properly, one of the UK's many problems at present is that while it has a mass of constitutional documents, these have not been synchronized into a single code that politicians and the public can read and have access to. 
you know, as, as one former law lord said, um, constitutionally, uh, the UK is in a desert without guidelines. Um, and how long that can continue is anyone's guess. That was Linda Colley. Her book, The Gun, The Ship and The Pen, is available now, published by Profile. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt, Jack Bateman and Brittany Colley. Tomorrow we have an episode on everything you wanted to know about life in the workhouse. (laughs) 